Well, uh, this morning, um, uh, as you can tell, I, I will be preaching without amplification, so I hope I can be loud enough. Any doubters on that one? Yeah, probably not. Hey guys, uh, man, uh, just um, I- I'm excited about uh, today, maybe particularly a little more than I normally would be, and, and this is going to sound kind of weird because of all of the things that seem to have gone wrong. Uh, a lot of you don't know this, but some of you do. This morning, we couldn't make our, our brand new sound system work. We, 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 I don't know if you guys know this, but we just bought a brand new sound system, and, and we've used it a couple of weeks here, but we had some work done. We got it put into a gig rig or something. I don't know. Well, you know a case. I just call it a case. I, I, but I'm, you know, what do I know? And, uh, and we couldn't make it work this morning, so like today, we've got things all kind of at the last minute patched in and connected there and cross-connected, and I don't know what else. And then... And then um, uh, and of course we couldn't use, you know, I couldn't wear my cool Lady Gaga thing on my, over here, uh, which is probably also good. And uh, I always wanted to say Lady Gaga during a sermon, I don't know why. And then, um, and then um, I just realized that I did not bring my glasses. <laughs> but fortunately I'm using my iPad for my notes, and I can make it pretty gigantic, so even I can read it. But, you know, here's why all that excites me. Um, because God is bigger than all of these things that distract us. Amen. All of these things that frustrate us and make us think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? God is bigger than all of those things. And I'm excited that today we are all going to get to witness God demonstrating that He's bigger, that He's greater than all of those things. Today, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3, and there's 10 verses in Jonah chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, turn there. We're going to get to the text here in a few minutes. Um, and as, as we begin to think about Jonah chapter 3, I want you to think about kindness. Kindness. In fact, let me just hear from you. How would you define kindness? Um, that was a question, and questions beg to be answered, so how would you, please speak up, define kindness? Acting favorably towards someone. Okay, acting favorably towards someone. Okay, cool. What else? Anybody else? Generously giving. Generously giving, okay. Alright. Anybody else have a suggested definition for kindness? Forbearance. Forbearance. Okay. Anybody want to offer a definition for forbearance? <laughs> it basically means patience. Being, being patient with someone. Uh, putting up with uh, the, those things that you find annoying, difficult, whatever. Uh, forbearance. Okay, now, just somebody... Tell us about an act of kindness that you have recently received. How have you experienced kindness recently? Financial advice from Judy Smith. Okay, fantastic. I like that. Anybody else? An act of kindness. No one here other than Brett Rachel? 
Do what? So let's go ahead and read the text together. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, um, those of you who have been here uh, the last few weeks know that uh, this month, In January, we are looking at the book of Jonah. I'm preaching through Jonah. uh, And we, you know, we're on chapter 3, so we've done chapter 1 and chapter 2. And and, um, if you remember, or if you haven't been here, if you're just getting back into town or whatever, um, maybe you are familiar with, you know, the, the story of Jonah. God calls Jonah, his prophet, 
to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim a message there. Okay, And Jonah is a prophet of God. And the book of Jonah is not the only time we hear about Jonah. We go back to 2 Kings and find out that Jonah is mentioned there and that he prophesies in Israel. And he does that, according to Scripture, faithfully. Okay, But now he's called by God to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's first response to God's call to go to Nineveh is to go in the opposite direction. Jonah runs from God. And of course... Um, if you know the story, you know that he uh, pays the fare, gets on a ship headed for Tarshish, and a, God sends a storm, threatens to destroy the ship. The sailors on that ship um, fear death. They want to appease whatever God or gods might be causing this. And then uh, through the course of interactions with Jonah and God uh, working in his life and the lives of those sailors, uh, they see the power of God demonstrated because he, God, gives the command that for the storm to stop, Jonah's got to be thrown overboard. They eventually do it. The, the storm stops immediately. Those sailors are amazed and they turn from their idolatry. They turn from their worship of false gods and they make vows and offer sacrifices to the one true God. And, oh, by the way, Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. That's the important part. And then in the belly of that great fish, Jonah repents of running from God. And in a prayer, he offers his repentance, and he says to God, I will obey. I will, whatever I have vowed, I will do. And so he then agrees to go to Nineveh. And then uh, in one of my favorite verses in Jonah, uh, the great fish vomits, good word, Jonah up on a dry land, and then Jonah makes the journey uh, on into Nineveh, and then that's where we pick up today in chapter 3, seeing that Jonah then goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh is a great city. And, you know, the text says that it's, the text says it's a three-days March or three-day journey uh, because Nineveh is such a great city. And um, it's important to understand that just the walled city of Nineveh has never been <laughs> a three-day's journey. But there are these outlying districts that are part of this uh, of of really the the metro area of Nineveh. Nineveh is the, the hub, the center, it is the seat of government and leadership, and there are these outside, outlying districts that are outside the, the city walls, but still part of Nineveh. And those are about, about 45 miles or so, which would be at 15 miles a day, about a three days journey. So, really, God's calling Jonah to go to this greater area that's called Iraq surrounding Nineveh. Not just the city of Nineveh, but all the outlying villages. This is where God is calling Jonah to go. And he goes. And God gives him direction one step at a time. He says, go there and deliver the message that I will tell you. It doesn't even really tell him the message ahead of time. It doesn't even tell him now, as he did before, to cry out against the city. He just says, I'll give you the message when you get there. And of course, Jonah goes, 
And uh, he obeys God uh, with some questions about his attitude in this obedience. And we'll look at that more so next week in chapter 4. But he gets there and he begins to proclaim this message for 40 days. And Nineveh will be overthrown. And curious to note, or important to note, that that word overthrown, when, when Jonah proclaims 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown, overthrown, same word, same word for what God was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Right? Remember that back in uh, Abraham's time? God sees the evil of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God utterly destroys them. Like fire from heaven wiping them out. Except for Lot and part of his family. Except for one family, God destroys those two cities completely, entirely. Same word here. When, when God says 40 days more and Nineveh is overthrown... What he means is 40 days more and Nineveh is destroyed. Treating Nineveh much like he treated Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the text tells us, Jonah chapter 3 tells us that upon hearing that message, 40 days more and Nineveh is overthrown, the people, get this, believe God. They believe that message. They believe that warning. In fact, they believe it so devoutly that they make a significant change. They turn from their evil ways. They turn away from their wickedness. They fast and mourn and seek God's forgiveness. In fact, the people do that, and the king sees the people doing that, and he makes it actually a, a, a city-wide, area-wide proclamation that everyone needs to turn from their wickedness and to demonstrate our turning from wickedness, everyone is called to fast. And not only is everyone called to fast, everyone is called to force their animals to fast. So not, not, not just are, are the people going to fast, but also they're forcing the animals to fast to demonstrate their change of heart. They're demonstrating their change of heart by showing that through their animals fasting and sitting in ashes. Because wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes is often, um, or was at that time, a way to demonstrate mourning Sadness, remorse. And so the idea is the people are showing themselves their remorse over their own evil. And not only is that so, we are so remorseful over our sin, we want our animals, our flocks and herds to demonstrate our remorse. Obviously the animals don't have remorse over their sin. Also notice that the king did not say everyone, including beasts, must turn from their evil ways. Okay. The king called for the animals to demonstrate what the people were demonstrating, but he didn't call for the animals to repent. Okay? Just the people. That's, that, th those are the ones that, that demonstrated their repentance um, in answer to 
God's message in the king's edict. And the king expressed this hope for the city of Nineveh. He said, maybe God will see us. He'll see our repentance. He'll see our remorse. And perhaps he will relent and not do what he has said he would do. And chapter 3 ends with that very thing. God seeing the repentance of the people of Nineveh. And God relents. He puts off the judgment that he said he would inflict upon Nineveh. In fact, and then of course we know from other biblical material, particularly the prophet Nahum, that in about 150 years, God will ultimately visit his judgment upon Nineveh for their evil, for their sin. So, as we think about the message of Jonah and the repentance of Nineveh, um, as I said, we'll see God's kindness demonstrated. And, and, and first I want you to notice God's kindness is demonstrated um, in warning. In the first, the first four verses, the first four verses of Jonah chapter 3 are a warning to the people of Nineveh. God warns them of impending judgment. God warns them of his fierce anger for their sin and the judgment that he's about to inflict upon them. And I, I want to suggest that that is a kindness. I know at first, you know, it might not sound like a kindness. Because again, remember the message is, in 40 days I'm leveling this place. In 40 days, Nineveh will be no more. You know, um, that might not initially sound like a kindness, but I want to submit to you that it is absolutely God's kindness demonstrated in warning. Because, first of all, and this is important for us to understand, God does not owe anyone a warning of his judgment. He doesn't. You and I are not owed. Mankind is not owed a warning of God's judgment. We, we've had all the warning we need because, as Romans 1 tells us, 18 through, I don't know, like 31, 18 to 31, but particularly verses 19 and 20, Romans 1, 19 and 20, that the text says there, the Bible says there that what is knowable about God is clearly seen. For God's invisible qualities, His, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly understood by what He's made. In other words, the general revelation that's out there in this world, this universe that God has created is enough for us to know that He exists and that He's holy and our evil offends Him. What Jonah said as much 
in his statement to the sailors in chapter 1 when he says, I fear, let's put air quotes around Jonah's fear, the Lord God, the maker of the dry land and the sea. Okay? Jonah, Jonah says to the sailors, you'll know the God I serve because he's made everything and he controls it. And isn't it interesting that that statement is all that Jonah tells the sailors and he expects them to know what he's talking about? Why? Because God's eternal power, his divine nature, his invisible qualities are clearly demonstrated in what he's made. And then here's what it says in Romans 1.20. So that no man is without excuse. No one has an excuse for not loving, obeying, and following God because he's made it clear in what he has made, and what he has created. So God doesn't owe anyone a warning. But when God does warn, and think about it, think about all of the times in Scripture God has warned mankind. Now think about all of the times in Scripture God has warned you. How God has warned us. That's God's kindness. Every time God warns us, He's showing His kindness toward us. And you know what? God does not owe us time to change. Implicit in the warning 40 days more, and then it is overthrown? What does that tell you? God's giving them 40 days to change. But God doesn't owe anyone time to change. It is perfectly just and right for a perfectly holy God to expect immediate obedience from you and I. In fact, that is the very thing that God get, uh, expressed to Adam in the Garden of Eden. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 17, the one rule, the one bit of instruction in the Garden of Eden, you catch that, will you? Okay, in the Garden of Eden, mankind had one and only one rule. One law. God said, you may eat of every tree in the garden except one. You may not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I know that many have said, well, what God meant was you'll die spiritually. There will be now this, this great rift between man and God. and so, so God meant the day you eat of it, you'll die spiritually. That's true. But that's not all. God also meant physically, I will kill you. You will die. End of life. Yes, it also meant all of the, 
the death of man spiritually and his, and his perfect union and relationship with God and be destroyed and fractured and all that. That is all true. But it also meant, God also meant, you will die because I will kill you. I will end your life. But yet, God showed forbearance. God showed patience and mercy. He showed kindness in giving mankind time to change. He didn't end the human race right there at the beginning when it got started because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's disobedience of that one rule. God could have and would have been completely just in and righteous doing an end to the human race. But God gave time for mankind. And thanks to him he did give time. Because God does not owe us time to change. It's kindness that God forbears. It's kindness that God is patient. It is kindness that God doesn't immediately bring the judgment that our actions deserve. But notice this also. Warning is an invitation to repent. God's kindness is demonstrated in warning because warning is an invitation to repent. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, God makes this statement. If I declare, I'm paraphrasing by the way, if I declare judgment, destruction on a city or a people and they repent, and turn to me, I will relent. Basically, in Jeremiah 18, God says, my warning is an invitation to repent. And so warning is a kindness of God because in the warning, God says, I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm calling you to turn away from your sin and turn to me. God's kindness is demonstrated in warning. But also notice, God's kindness is demonstrated in repentance. God's kindness is demonstrated in repentance. We see that in verses 5 through 9. And here's why I say God's kindness is demonstrated in repentance. Because you, be, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, Jim, isn't repentance the thing that we do? I mean, aren't, aren't we the ones that repent? Yes, but where do you think that comes from? Where do you think repentance comes from? Does that come from completely from within you? You who are dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked? Is that where repentance comes from? This, this good act of obedience to God? That comes from just your heart. Well, you know, what do we what do we know about the human condition? Well, well Ephesians 2, 1 says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. What can a dead man do? Say it, what? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely right. 
A dead man can do nothing. How can we who are dead repent? We can't. We can't. That doesn't come from us. And what, what, is, what does Jeremiah say about the heart? Yeah, it is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah says, the prophet Jeremiah says, we don't even know our own hearts. In fact, our own hearts will deceive us. We ourselves can't even know our own hearts. But, but Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we can't know our own hearts, but God can. And does. And His Word, the Word of God, like what Jonah spoke to Nineveh, that's what judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. You see, yes, repentance is an action that we take, but it doesn't come from us. The act of repentance doesn't find its origin in our hearts. It can't. Because we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked and we can't even know them. No, repentance really comes from God's character and God's action. Repentance comes as God is who He is. As we see God's character demonstrated in His actions, like His kindness shown in warning, um, the hope of salvation, the work of <clears throat> making sacrifice for sin, the act of expressing mercy and the giving of grace, all of those things that come from God, His character, His action, that's really the source of repentance in us. Repentance is grounded in God's faithfulness and hope in Him. Look what the king of Nineveh said in verse 9. I was going to paraphrase it, but I'm just going to read. That'll be better. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. What does that tell you about the repentance of the Ninevites? That repentance was grounded in the hope that God would relent from his fierce anger. And notice, notice that the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh, never said his unjust anger, his unfair anger. No, the response of the Ninevites made it clear that they understood that God's anger towards them was justified. They had rightly earned God's fierce anger. But their repentance was grounded in the hope that God, by His faithfulness, would relent from His fierce anger. The anger they deserved. They were hoping in God's mercy. 
They were hoping in God's grace. And that's where repentance is grounded. As we don't repent because somehow we came to the conclusion it's the right thing to do. No, we repent because we hope in God. Because God has been faithful. He's demonstrated His faithfulness. And He continues to demonstrate His faithfulness. He gives mercy. He shows grace. And we hope in that. And so, we repent. So, repentance is response to God's character and God's action. Repentance is grounded in God's faithfulness and hope in Him. And repentance begins with believing God. Notice that. The warning comes from Jonah, and the people believe God and demonstrate repentance. If they don't believe God, if they don't believe Him, there is no repentance on their part. That's where it begins. And here's the deal. If we don't believe God, if we don't believe Him and His Word, whether it be the, the warning, the kindness of warning, or the kindness of promise, of hope, if we don't believe those things, we won't repent. There will be no repentance. Repentance, again, is grounded in God's character and His action, His faithfulness, our hope in Him, and it begins with believing in Him. And it is characterized by doing away with business as usual. That's what the whole, you know, putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes, and fasting. Oh yeah, and and not feeding or giving drink to the animals and forcing them also to sit in ashes. All of that was to demonstrate that the new change must occur. Repentance means no more business as usual. If we say that we repent and nothing changes, there is no repentance. Because repentance is characterized by change. It's a change from something, in this case, sin, to something else, faith. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God in faith, and that's demonstrated, it's lived out in discernible, measurable ways. And for the Ninevites, it was fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Here's the deal. For us, it's not that. We don't demonstrate repentance by putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes. That was, for the Ninevites, the way they demonstrated it. But for us, it's demonstrated in a changed life. In the in changing the way that we live. That's how we demonstrate repentance. Well, not only is God's kindness demonstrated in warning and in repentance, but God's kindness is also demonstrated in salvation. Look at verse 10. God does indeed see what they did. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God's kindness is demonstrated in salvation. God's kindness is demonstrated to the Ninevites. By saving them from the disaster 
that they had earned. And God's kindness is demonstrated to us in saving us from the disaster that we've earned. Now, the disaster we've earned is a sinner's hell. Our rebellion and disobedience against God has earned for us a sinner's hell. But God has saved us from that disaster in Christ. God's justice has been satisfied by making Jesus, here it comes, a propitiation. Amen. For us, took our place, took our punishment, took the disaster that we had earned and put it all on Him. And by faith in Christ, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, all of that is taken away. And we're saved from that disaster. And that is a work of God. Salvation belongs to Him and His kindness is demonstrated to us in that salvation. And salvation is always undeserved. It's undeserved. We're going to find out in in chapter 4 next week that that was kind of part of Jonah's problem. That's what kind of stuck in his crawl. That's what had him all upset. And it's the whole reason why in the beginning he disobeyed. He didn't believe that Nineveh deserved to be saved. And you know what? He was absolutely right. Nineveh didn't deserve to be saved. But here's where he was wrong. He underestimated God. And he believed he did deserve saved. That's, that's the problem. Jonah said, I deserve it, but they don't. But here's the reality. Salvation is never deserved. None of us deserve salvation. Because none of us have earned it. So if it's unearned, undeserved, then it must be a gift. Salvation is always a gift. And here's the thing. We say that, like, if I said to you today, who believes salvation is a gift? Everyone would raise their hands, right? Is there anyone here who would say, no, it's not a gift? Well, probably not. Okay, we would all agree, yes, salvation is a gift. But either we don't understand gift-receiving, or we don't believe it's really a gift. And you can't blame us, because in our culture there's this pattern for gift-giving, right? Anybody watch uh, Big Bang Theory? Anybody watch that show? Okay, yeah. Like, do you remember the episode where uh, Penny is going to give Sheldon... Okay, everyone who doesn't watch this isn't going to get this, right? I probably shouldn't do this. Okay. So, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, so Penny is going to give Sheldon a gift. 
a Christmas gift. It shows like, oh my gosh, you know, the culture demands uh, on me or that I give a gift to her. I reciprocate and my gift must be equal or greater, but not too much greater in value than the gift she gives me. Sheldon takes it and makes an equation out of gift giving. So he goes to the mall and he goes to, you know, like, whatever, those, that, some girly store. And, uh, I don't know. And gets a, gets a gift basket, but he doesn't know what gift she's giving, so he buys every gift basket, the smallest and the largest, and he brings them all home, and he hides in his bedroom, and here's his plan. When Penny gives him his gift, he'll open it, he'll go, oh, thank you, then he'll excuse himself to go to the restroom, but he'll actually go in his bedroom and pick out the gift basket that approximates the gift that she gave him. And that is indeed how we treat gift-giving. If somebody gives you a gift, you have to give them a gift right back. And if they give you a gift valued at X dollars, you must give them a gift valued at about X dollars. It can be a little more or it can be a little less. It can't be way less and it can't be way more. Or they'll feel bad and next year they'll get you a more expensive gift. Right? Is that, I mean, am I wrong on that or is that how we treat gift giving normally? We feel like we have to do that, right? Because we don't understand gift giving. Gifts are given not expecting anything in return. And that's why we have such a hard time with salvation being a gift. We say we get that, but we really struggle in not attempting to reciprocate. And here's the deal. You can't. You cannot reciprocate the gift of salvation. In fact, it's an undervaluing the gift when you think you can reciprocate. When you think that somehow by your service to others, your good works, your religious obedience, some type of activity, you can repay God for the gift of salvation, then you don't understand the gift. You undervalue the gift when you think or act as though or attempt to reciprocate. Because salvation is undeserved, unearned, it's always a gift, and it belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. It's His. And He gives it as He wills. He gives it to the undeserved. He gives it because it is unearned, can't be earned. He gives it to demonstrate his kindness toward us. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that in the ages to come, God's desire is to show the immeasurable riches of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness goes ultimately beyond any definition that we might come up with. God's kindness, demonstrated in warning and repentance and salvation, okay, goes beyond any act of kindness we might have received. It's the ultimate act of kindness of a holy God to an undeserving people. So how do we respond? Well, we respond in repentance. 
this entire looking at God's kindness and warning and repentance and salvation is in itself a call for you and I to repent, to turn from our sin and disobedience and rebellion and turn to God in faith. And here's the deal. We learned this last week. We're always going to need repentance. Repentance isn't just this one-time deal. It's not like, okay, on the day I receive Christ by faith, I repent of my sin and my repenting days over. No! You know, sin is habitual. Um, and sanctification is not complete in this life, so there's always going to be sin, so you're always going to need to repent. The prophet had to repent. You and I must repent. But also, receive. Remember, it's a gift. It's a gift. Receive it as a gift. And receiving isn't just, oh yeah, I'm glad I got this. We receive by the way we respond. When I say receive, I mean receive it as a gift that you do not repay and that you cannot repay, but that you cherish, that you cherish and love and finally rejoice in. So we repent, we receive, and we rejoice. Rejoice in the gift that you have been given. You know, we don't really get what happens after the the uh, the sackcloth and ashes by the people of Nineveh. But on day 41, I guarantee they rejoiced. You know, the message was 40 days more, and Nineveh is overthrown. On day 41, I'm sure they rejoiced. Because they knew that God had relented from his fierce anger. And I know they rejoice. Rejoice in what you have been given. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that salvation is a gift from you. God, thank you for your kindness shown us in warning. Thank you for your kindness shown us in granting us repentance. And God, thank you for your kindness that is shown to us in salvation. We recognize it is undeserved and unearned. God, may we repent, receive, and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.